Uh, we're in the middle or the beginning stages of a, uh, a journey through Romans. And uh, this is a profound letter that many of the, uh, of the scholars of old, uh, the theologians like Martin Luther and John Wesley and others, uh, would claim that this was an, a life-altering letter or book in the Bible for them. Um, John Wesley actually said this, that he experienced a strange warming of his heart as he read through this letter that really unpacks the grace of God for us. Well, in the beginning of this uh, this letter, Paul really kind of uh, helps us to understand the condition of the human heart, the con- condition of humanity in its fallen state, that, um, that apart from God's grace, we're in big, big trouble. Um, we're, we're lost in our brokenness. The wages of sin is death. And uh, and so today we're talking about, we're continuing to talk about God's judgment. Um, and so I, I want us to, to look at this, and I'm going to bookend this message uh, with the good news, uh, with the good news of God's grace and, uh, and how we should be postured towards those uh, that are outside the church and inside the church. And so I, I want to begin with a, a little portion of Scripture from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And if you're familiar with this passage, this is, this is from the fourth gospel. Uh, John was one of Jesus' disciples, uh, one that knew he was loved by, by Christ. And, uh, and he is, uh, he's the only one that gives an account of this particular piece. What happens is, is the Pharisees are always trying to trap Jesus. They're, they're testing him with questions. Uh, they're passing him coins and, and trying to get him to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing so they can trap him. Ultimately, they've declared that they want to kill him. And um, what they do in this occasion is they drag a girl that's been caught in adultery. Now, this is the religious leaders, and they've, they're dragging this girl maybe even naked, through town, um, and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And said basically this, the the law says that she, because of her sin, is to be stoned to death. What do you say? And the sad scenario here is that they're they're using this this girl's scenario uh, as just a way to trap Jesus. And Jesus says an interesting word. They, They find him writing in the sand. Uh, we don't know what it is, um, but he basically says to them, he says this, he says, you without sin cast the first stone. Now, that only means that one person in this particular venue has the authority to throw that stone, and who is that? Jesus himself, right? So he's saying, if, if you without sin cast the first stone, and the scripture tells us there that they began to walk away, dropping their stones one at a time, the oldest ones first. And it's interesting because Jesus could very easily, as one without sin, he could have casted that stone at her and stoned her to death, which which the law uh, required. And uh, Jesus looked at her and he says, does anyone condemn you? And he says, she says, no. And he says, then I condemn you neither. Go and sin no more. Now, look, one of the things that we understand in Scripture is that the wages of sin is death. Like, God's righteous standards must be satisfied, or, or we, are, we are condemned by God's holiness and righteousness. And in this case, we see Jesus could have easily been the one to administer that to her, but instead he administers grace and forgiveness, and he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, 
there's two fast. I mean, part of us looks at these Pharisees and goes, man, how could they judge that girl like that? How could they use her like that as a pawn in this, in this, uh, in this, this, this maze of trying to capture Jesus? The other side of us sees the mercy of God and we see the grace of God exp- expressed to this young lady and we're moved to compassion. Which one would you prefer to be an expression of? And, and, and all of us would say, I'd, I'd, like to be, I'd like to share Christ's approach to this scenario and not the Pharisees. And, and that's kind of what gets at the heart of the text that we're looking at today is that, you know, so often as a culture... We are very prone to be judgmental towards others. Uh, often the folks outside the church will say, that, oh, the church is very judgmental rather than loving, which is supposed to categorize the church as love and grace and mercy and joy, these things that should exemplify the church. Often we're categorized as, as judgmental. And if we understand how God has postured himself towards us in, in patience, in love, in mercy. Man, that's exactly how God wants us to be postured towards others. And again, that's that's kind of where we're getting at this morning. I want to share the big idea with you. I, I want to ask you a series of questions as I kind of unpack what I believe this text is helping us to understand. Um, do you believe that belief in the gospel and repentance of sin makes you a new creation? Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe simply by believing that Christ died for my sin, that he was buried and that he rose again, conquering death and, and, uh, and, and having victory for humanity? Do you believe that in my belief in that and my repentance of my sin that I'm a new creation? I believe that. Um, what about others? Do you believe that others also are a new creation on the other side of belief and repentance? then do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as a new creation? Do you believe what God's word says? And, that, and do, we, um, do we allow that truth to resonate in our hearts and cause us to live as a new person? Do we see others that way? And this gets at the, really at the heart of what we're after this morning. Do you really believe that we are new? Do you believe that others are new because of the work and the finishing work of Christ? Because if we do, what place does judgment have in our lives? This, this passage gets quoted a lot, but I'm going to read it in a little bit more context. Um, we, we finished 2 Corinthians a little while back, and I'm going to look at chapter 5, verse 16 and 7. Listen to what it says. It says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In 1 Corinthians 13, it it says, love keeps no record of wrong. And I think one of the things that we have a difficult time doing is letting go of the past in our own experiences and even in the experiences of others. And, you know, what about, what about what someone did yesterday or the day before? If they're in Christ, do we, do we, do we see them the way God sees them? Do we, do we relate to them uh, the way that we've seen God relate to us when we are in a posture of repentance? Or, you know, this passage goes on that we're looking at this morning, talks about in God's forbearance. 
in His patience. Aren't you grateful that God is patient with you in the process of repentance? He reveals His kindness to us in, in, in forbearance and patience. And as we experience His kindness, we come to repentance. Should we not have the same like attitude towards others? Should we not have that same posture towards others? Last week, um, uh, Trevor said, I'm, you know, Pastor Trevor said, we're gonna, I'm going to end with some good news. Well, I want to pick up where he left off because I think that we see the other side of the passage we're looking at this morning in this same text in Luke 15. And I'll, I'll read through the first portion just to give us a reminder of last week. Last week's big idea was that um, getting what we want is a form of God's wrath. That when we're wanting what God isn't wanting, but what our flesh is desiring, when we run after our desires, um, often our, 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 the wrath we receive is getting what we want rather than what God wants. And God will turn us over to those things as the passage talked about three different times. So in Luke 15, uh, we, see the, we, see, uh, we see the parable of the prodigal son picking up in verse 11. And, uh, and we talked predominantly last week as the close of the message about this is a picture of uh, someone being given over to what they want, but ultimately bringing them to a place of repentance and coming home and experiencing the kindness of the Father. And uh, so I'll pick up the passage in verse 11, Luke chapter 15, and it says this. The he here is Jesus. He says, he said, um, there was a man who had two sons. It's important we understand there's only two. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Okay, so he already saw the property as his. And as Trevor pointed out last week, that's like saying, I don't care about you whether you live or die. I want what's coming to me. Just a horrific attitude towards the father. And it says this, that, and he, the father, divided his property between them, meaning the older and the younger son. The younger son is the one that wanted to, wanted his share and he wanted to head off. So he got a third. Uh, the older son in, in Jewish culture would have got, always gotten two thirds. The, the other third would have been meant to take care of his father in the latter days of his life. Verse 13. Um, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. Why would you gather all that you have? You're not coming back. This is a pretty determined destiny. Um, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. Why do you go far away? You don't want to be anybody to tell you what to do. You want, you want to remove yourself from any sense of authority or accountability. And there he squandered his property in reckless, or the NIV says, wild living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. You know how Jews feel towards pigs. They're extremely an unclean animal to them. So this, this is basically a picture of getting to the bottom of the barrel. Um, he, he wanted to eat pig slop. And it's interesting that the text says that no one would even give him that. And, and it's in this moment that he comes to his senses. Verse 16, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were, would eat, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? 
the, the servants in his father's house has more than enough. But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer. So he's rehearsing his statement of repentance here in the pig's pen. And in verse 19 says, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he kind of come to the end of himself. He was humbled by his circumstances. God had authored a famine in his life. And this had really brought him to um, the reality of who he was. So it goes on in verse 20, it says, and, and he arose and came to his father. And one of my favorite parts of this passage or this parable says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, let's be reminded that this is the son that says, I don't care if you live or die. This is the son that then went from that point and went off and squandered a third of his estate. And now he's still a long way off. And for the father to even know and see him, that means that he has been anticipating his arrival. And it, it says he's not filled with judgment here, right? What does it say that the father is filled with? Compassion for this son that has, that has done hurtful things and has squandered his estate. And it says he is filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. Um, so he says, while he's still a long way off, the father saw him and, was, and, 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 and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, he begins this, this statement of, of confession or repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, said to his servants, bring quick, bring quickly the best robe, not any robe, the best robe, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let's, let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, not servant, was dead and is, is living again, was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now, what, was the, what was the young son looking for? He was looking for the celebration. He was looking for the party. And the truth was the party was at home all along in the father's presence. And what he experienced was the compassion and the love and the kindness of a father. What do you think he expected when he got home? I mean, obviously he goes home expecting that his father's going to at least take him back as a servant. But do you think he expects the best robe, a ring, shoes or sandals and a party? But this, this is our God. This is, this is the character, the posture of God towards the repentant son. Well, what I want to look at this morning as we continue this passage is I want to look at... Um, the older son's response. So one of the things I want to ask you is whose resources are they celebrating with? Because if he's given away his portion to one of two sons, the portion that remains belongs to the older son. And from the older son's perspective, he doesn't deserve it. Right? And... And so he moves into, the older son moves into a posture of, I can't believe this is happening. Listen, listen to this. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things, what are these, these things meant? I'm sorry. And asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fat, the fatted calf or fatted, yeah, the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. His response, but he was angry and refused to go into the party. I will not participate in this. I am angry. Why is he angry? Because he believes that now this son that has squandered his inheritance is coming back and this is not right. He is undeserving of this. So this perspective and attitude keeps him from the party. I think that's something that we need to see. It keeps him from a mode of celebration. It keeps him from a mode of, of enjoying the father's perspective. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. Notice the eyes, mys, those, those, those pieces. It says, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you have never given me a young goat, and I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours... He doesn't, he doesn't refer to him as this brother of mine. But this son of yours came... Who has, devo- who has devoured your property with prostitutes. So, you know, the, the positive thing here is he still sees it as the father's property. But he is not happy that his brother's home. He's mad. His heart is filled with judgment, and he is not celebrating from the father's perspective. Now, let's listen to the father's perspective. Well, the, the son continues in verse 30. But when the son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes... You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. Is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother of yours, this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That's God's perspective on this. That's his attitude towards this scenario. Is that our your brother has come home. And do you think that do you think the father wanted the son, the older son, to uh, to share his perspective, and to share his enthusiasm and celebration? Well, God has the same desire for us when it comes to others to share His posture. Our, our passage picks up in Romans chapter one. I mean, chapter two, verse one, and it says this: "Therefore, you have no excuse." Uh, another translation says, you are just as bad, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So what is Paul referring to here? Well, this is the latter part. Uh, Let's always remember that these are letters. We break them into chapters and verses, but these are letters that are written to churches. And this this letter is written to the Roman church. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul makes this statement in verses 29 to 32. And he refers to this group as they, and I just want to clarify who they are. They is the world at large. They is humanity. They are, is the human condition. And he says this, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceitful uh, maliceness. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so what he does here is he he shifts. Now he's talking to the audience to which the letter is written. Now he he shifts in chapter 2, verse 1, to the church. He's described the human condition. He's described cultural ills. And now he is speaking to the church here. The church is made up as it is today of people that are believers, some that are seekers, some that are unbelievers. Uh, I don't think that's any different than the average church today. And Paul says this again, and I'll, I'll repeat. Therefore, you have no excuse. In other words, you are just as bad, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For, and this is, this is, this is sobering. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. At what standard do you measure others? I mean, like, when you're, when you're judging others, like, how does that, how does that judge, what is the criteria of that judgment? Jesus says, uh, with the measure that you use, it'll be measured to you. Verse 3, why do you see, and I think that's interesting, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How in the world do we get, I mean, I am fully aware of all of the deficiency in my life, the sin that so easily entangles. How do I deal with this log that's in my eye that clearly, like, prevents me from seeing anything clearly? Well, that's where our submission to God, that's where our confession of sin that's where we acknowledge that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. That's where we express to a God that's in the posture of forgiveness and mercy that is He's ready to extend that to our sin. Like, for me, it's kind of hard to understand where if God has, has, has done everything possible for us to be forgiven, cleansed, purified, and not to just start over. I mean, past, present, and future sin satisfied for all eternity, like he is offering this great gift, why would we hold on to our sin? It can only be pride, self-sufficiency, thinking that we can somehow f- solve our own problems or, 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 or save ourselves. And we know that's not a reality. And so the only way that we can see clearly is by, is by acknowledging our log and telling God, I can't fix this but you can. Acknowledging his power, his provision, acknowledging the gospel, and uh, and then, and only then, can our log be removed so that we can see clearly. There's a parable in Matthew 18. 
It's called the unmerciful servant. And it's very, it's very appropriate to this passage. And in that passage, what it talks about is uh, this, this guy that owed a king a massive debt. And the debt is kind of so that we have a reference for how large the debt was. He owed the king 10,000 annual wages. Well, just quickly think through that. You might live six, you might work 60 years at max, but 10,000 annual wages. This is what he owed. And he falls down at the king's feet and he says, you know, I'll pay it back. I mean, that's impossible. You can't pay it back. It's important that we understand the extent of the debt because the debt is meant to show us the debt we have before God. That there's no way, there's, there's absolutely no way that we could ever repay the debt. And he begs him to forgive him of the debt and the king forgives him of the entire debt because he begged him to. He said, it's done, it's finished. And he walks out and he finds a fellow servant that owed him, and, and if you calculate it, it's a 100 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. And if you calculate it in, in, in modern terms, it's about five months wages. So it's, it's a significant hurt. It's a significant amount. And, and here he, he's just been forgiven 10,000 annual wages, and he walks out the door, finds someone that, has, that owes him five months wage in comparison, and it says he began to choke him and threw him in prison, demanding that he repay the debt that was owed to him. Now, how do you think the king felt about that when he heard about it? He calls him, he said, he called him a wicked servant, called him in and made, and threw him back in prison until he could pay the debt. Why? Because he could never. And he needs to understand that when a debt has been forgiven, that, that we should go out like, what was the expectation of the king? That he would go out and do likewise. And, and Jesus said, your heavenly father will cheat you likewise if you don't forgive one another from the heart. Well, it's the same thing in this passage as it relates to judgment. Man, how many of you are grateful this morning that God's judgment has been poured out on his son and, and he willingly endured that so that we might be free of God's wrath and judgment? And we don't have to fear that. It says perfect love casts out all fear. And, and he says fear related to punishment. I mean, how, how, I'm so grateful that I'm not going to even know the wrath of God because Christ endured his wrath for me. And so I will not know the judgment of God. I mean, can you imagine the adulterous woman sitting at Jesus' feet, waiting for the verdict? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you think that she was a little liberated? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do you think she she was a little excited? Do you think that the guy that was forgiven 10,000 annual wages, do you think he was a little excited? How dare he? How, I mean, from God's perspective, it's unfathomable that you could possibly go out and not forgive others, right? And is it not the same with judgment? Look, God's extension of grace and mercy, the gospel is, 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 is proclaimed to the world. We, we need to be an expression of the of the grace of God, and um, and it's saying, man, when we judge others, don't we don't we understand that we do the same thing? It might not be the exact same thing; it might not be a different flavor of the same thing, but we sin too. How dare we? So, how do we how do we balance that with what Scripture says in Second Corinthians five, where man, whatever the world's doing, 
man, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have they don't have God's word. They don't they don't they don't have the the, the you know God's guidance. So that's none of our business. But for those that are in the church, it says that we should we should hold one another accountable. We should speak the truth in love. But we're not holding them to our truth. We're holding them to God's truth. We're not doing that for their demise. We're doing that for their benefit. Hopefully, if we're doing it well, we're doing it in love because if they're standing in front of a truck, we don't want them to get hit. Like that's the motive. That's the heart. So, I mean, there's a balance in scriptures. It talks about judgment. But the judgment that's being expressed here is a judgment of condemnation, a judgment of, you know, it's harmful to them. It's destructive. It's not, it's not meant for building up. It's meant for tearing down. And so the passage reads, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in, in passing judgment on one another, on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You know, verse 2, you know that the judgment of God rightly falls, in other words, based on truth, on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, the very fact that we see the sin in, in others leaves us without an excuse before God. Does that make sense? The very fact that we recognize sin in other people <laughs> says, well, you must be overlooking what's going on in your life. Why are we so blind to our own sin? Why are we so blind to our own sin? Because we don't see it from God's perspective. Look, you know, don't you love, in, in 1 John 1, verse 8, it says, if, if you say that, he's talking to the church, he's talking to his little ones. John says, says if, you, if you say that you are without sin, you're a liar, you deceive yourself, the truth's not in you. And then he goes on to say, but if you confess your sins to a faithful and just God, you will be, he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Man, we, are, we have a God that's postured in grace and forgiveness. But the truth is, we're saints that continue to struggle in sin. God is in this sanctifying work in us. But we don't, what we don't need from, from one another, what we don't need is to be condemning one another when God's not doing that to us. Again, let's make sure that if, if we see someone that is, is blind or walking in something that they might even be aware of that just needs the love and encouragement of the standard of God's word, not your perspective, that we would love them enough to say so. I love this piece, um, a commentary that I saw this week, and this is appropriate. We cannot escape God's, judgment, God's righteous judgment by avoiding or resisting it. We find our, our only hope in to submitting to his verdict. If God says we have sinned, we must agree. We must agree with God's judgment. We obtain his mercy. Excuse me. When we agree with God's judgment, we obtain his mercy. When we agree that we are lost, we find a savior. We escape God's judgment by accepting it and claiming God's mercy and grace that wait for us. As, we, as a result, those who have experienced God's forgiveness overlook the faults in others while they recognize their own faults. On the other hand, those who have not yet received forgiveness are prone to excuse themselves while condemning and blaming others. The last group of people have not escaped God's judgment. 
That's what the text is telling us. And one of my favorite portions of this text is verse 4, and it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness by not by being judgmental to others? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? What is forbearance? Um, I remember when I, my, my first semester uh, of college, I went into financial aid and, and, uh, and I had to apply for a student loan. My parents said, unless you make A's and B's, we're not paying for college. And so they said, you get a student loan and if, if you make A's and B's, we'll pay it off. And so I, I, I got the student loan. Well, I was happy to find out that, you know, that I wasn't, I didn't have to pay this back until six months after I graduate. Well, that's what forbearance is. It's you owe a debt, but it's deferred until a period of time. And so um, God's wrath is being deferred to a day of judgment. That's, that's God's grace. That's God's patience. Um, I want to read a passage for you just so we kind of see this in other portions of Scripture. In, uh, in 2 Peter chapter t- 3, I believe it is 3.15, yes. Um, it says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Like that's God's pa- God is patient and forbearing and with our sin. Because think about it. If the wages of sin of death, the moment that we sin, we would have came out of the womb. I mean, none are, none are righteous, not one. The wages of sin is death. This is, but God in his grace and mercy is patient towards us. He's forbearing towards us. He's left his wrath. Now, one of the things that, why this is so important for us to understand is, is when other people sin against us, we want them to suffer now. But aren't you glad that God's grace is forbearing? And should we not have the same grace towards others? Look, there's going to come a day where everything's going to be made right. In, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says this, in the midst of Jesus going through all of the, the, the pain and suffering that was ours, it says, and they were, they were, they were ridiculing him, and he didn't say anything in return. He, they were hurling insults at him. He did not retaliate. And it says he, he entrusted himself to a faithful creator who, who judges justly. That's what verse 23 says. He entrusted himself to a faithful creator who judges justly. Like, guys, we have to put those things in God's hands. Rather than wanting to judge them, we have to, we have to rest in God's faithfulness and righteousness. And that there'll come a day where God will judge. But aren't we grateful that God doesn't judge our sin? And should we not have the same approach, but we're not trusting in, okay, now I can wait. You know, like P- Peter said, okay, how many times do I have to forgive him, Lord? You know, it's not that attitude. It's, it's not that, okay, I, you know, I can give them what they deserve down the road. No, it's that God in His perfect justice will give. But see, that's not His posture. Trust me, God is not in heaven going, I can't wait to get them. That's not His posture. He's not waiting. He's not like, man, I can't wait till that day comes where I can pour out my wrath. That's not, the, it, the scriptures say that He's patient. Why? So it goes on to say, so that none, that none might perish. That's his heart. I mean, he knows that the wide is the road that leads to destruction and many will enter through it or find it. But his patience, his patience, he, he had patience even leading up to the cross for those that, that were prior to the cross in history. 
And this is the mercy of God. And, and doesn't he want us to follow him in that? I mean, didn't Jesus exemplify that? It's such a beautiful picture for us. And we're so grateful for the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Like what is, what is the expression of his forbearance and patience, his kindness? So that we might repent. So that we might repent. And it's not that, because here's the thing. In our mentality, you know, like we think we're instant gratification, so we think that, okay, I did this, right? I sinned. Hey, I, I kind of feel like I got away with it. I'm not experiencing any, any side effects. I'm already consequences here. So huh, uh, maybe God didn't catch that one. No, no. Guys, when, when, when that goes on in that moment, just know that it's God's patience. But what is his heart? What is his desire for you in that moment? It's always the same thing, repentance. And so when someone, when, when we're tempted to judge others, we should have the same heart and the same approach is we should leave room for the wrath of God, right? Leave room and trust, and trust ourselves to a faithful creator who judges justly. But it's, it's God's heart not to get us, but to save us. It's God's heart to administer his his, his, uh, his grace and mercy to us that we might repent of our sin. And that's why he's patient. But there will come a day. And we need to be, we need to be keenly aware of this. There will come a day where everything is going to be made right and every sin will be, will be dealt with. Either poured out on his son or poured out on them. That's how it's going to work. And God's heart is Jesus Jesus ran to the cross so that it might be poured out on him. That's amazing grace. And that's what God wants us to experience. It is easy to mistake God's patience for approval of wrong living. That was my point. Just because you're not experiencing consequences in the moment, don't ever don't ever believe that God's righteousness doesn't stand. Unfortunately, we are more likely to be amazed at God's patience with others than humbled at his patience with us. Does that make sense? Like we, we, we get bothered. I mean, David, we see it in the Psalms. David's like, why do the evil prosper? I mean, it's just a picture of God's forbearance. I mean, it talked about the Canaanites. Their sin hadn't reached full measure, remember? And so, but when it did, <laughs> the wrath of God was expressed. Man, it's, a, it's a, and earlier in chapter 1 of Romans, it says the, 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 the wrath of God is, is being revealed. I mean, don't we experience already some of that? But trust me, God will make all things right. I think of, um, we know the wages of sin is death, but I think of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, there was a moment, they, they, how could you lie, Peter said, to the Holy Spirit? Ananias dropped dead. I mean, and we go, oh, that's not fair. You know what fairness is? It's that the wages of sin is death, that God's righteous standards has, has been breached and, and, and God gets what he wants because he's perfect. The message translation puts those first four verses like this. Those people who are on a dark spiral down, down those people who are on a dark spiral downward, but if 
You think that leaves you on the high, high ground where you can point your finger at others. Think again. Every time you criticize somebody, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgment, judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and, and misdemeanors. But God, but God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. You don't think, you don't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all the, all your misdoings and from uh, coming, coming down on you hard? Or do you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this went through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. His kindness, he takes us, in kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radically or a radical changed life. Man, that's the heart of God. He wants to, he wants to, he wants to move us through his compassion and grace into repentance. And until we repent, we, we still, we still hold the wrath of, of our sin. Verse five. But because of our hard and impenitent, and what that means is stubborn and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself. So what is that telling us very clearly? If we repent, the wrath gets shifted to the, to the sacrificial work of the cross. But if we hold on to our sin, if we hold on to unconfessed sin, if we try to deal with our sin, it causes misery and separation and ultimately, that wrath is being stored up. It says, stored up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments, judgment will be revealed. I mean, do we understand that God has made a way where there was no way? And for us to reject that way, it's perfect. It, it is, there's not going to be another way. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, in John 17, verse 3, it tells us what, I mean, Jesus basically says what eternal life is. And he says this, verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. No, where where am I missing this? Uh, This is eternal life that... Because I'm in Luke. That doesn't work that way. John 17, 3. Here we go. Uh, It says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Like, that's what eternal life is, to know God and know His Son. And He has made that possible for us. That's incredible that God has... He's rendered Himself available to us. And for us to, to be unrepentant of our sin is to just reject the grace, the mercy of God. Good doing. Now here, this passage almost helps, makes us think that those that do good get to heaven and those that don't do good don't get to heaven. And we think that, you know, you ask the average person on the street, that, you know, how do you know you can get to heaven? Well, I thought my good outweighs my bad. That's not how it works. The standard is, is God's perfect righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. That's the, perf- that's the standard. Uh, so if we want to get over the bar, it's, it's Jesus <laughs> and his righteousness. 
But that has been extended to us to be received, to be believed and received for ourselves so that we actually stand in his righteousness, his credential, his resume. Like we, that's imputed to us. That's credited to us by God. And when we believe that, we understand that we are righteous, not because we wanted to, but because God said so. And based on his criteria of belief and repentance, that's the case. And here's the point of the passage. In this point, doing good flows out of genuine faith. Like I don't, one of the fruits of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Like goodness is a byproduct of God's presence in our life. It, it's, he gives us the want to and the how to. He gives us the strength and the desire. Doing good is a result of a new life in Christ. Genuine faith produces good works in a believer's life. Uh, I read a piece that Trevor gave me from Tim Keller this week, and he explained it this way, which makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, an, an apple is is a is a is an expression of a of a tree that's alive and healthy, right? Uh, an apple tree, of course. Uh, any kind of fruit is a is a depiction of the tree being alive and healthy, but the apple doesn't make the tree alive and healthy. Does that make sense? Okay, the apple tells us that the tree is alive and healthy. But it doesn't make the tree alive and healthy. So, you know, faith without deeds is dead. Because what? Genuine faith, alive faith works. And it produces good fruit. And so that's the point of what's being stated here is that it's not contradicting what he said in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It's still by grace that we are saved. Doing good as a response to God's grace rather than as a way of earning God's grace is what we understand. Verse 8 continues, but for those who are self-seeking, this is the contrast, but for those are those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Man, the, the, the scriptures don't pull punches. I mean, God's word is clear. I mean, our sin leads, leads to death and that's fair because that's God's righteous standard. But, God doesn't leave us there. God makes a way sacrificially by his own willingness. He endures our sin and suffering and then says, I will give you the righteous standing that you're desperate for in order to be in my father's presence. I mean, that's the greatest gift that's ever been given. We don't have to suffer for our sin because Jesus willingly did. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, uh, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the, the Greek. The Jews are first in line for everything from God, including his judgment. We must recognize the absolutes of the human condition apart from God before we will take seriously God's offer of salvation. Man, don't miss that. There are some absolutes. God has declared the, 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 the standard by which we must live. And when we fall short of God's righteous standard, it leaves us in a place of we're lost, we're broken. We're not even alive from God's perspective. But God has offered us a free gift in a moment of surrender and acknowledging, agreeing with God about our sin. I mean, that's what it takes. It takes us going, yeah, God, I think lying is bad. 
I think it breaks your moral code. I, I think it, it, it compromises your righteousness and your holiness. It's agreeing with God about the things that, that, you know what, we can't even help doing. But God has made a way. Verse 10, But glory, this is the contrast for those that, that thrive in good deeds because of the Spirit's work and help, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. For the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality. I close with this. Guys, I really believe that this passage is, is challenging us to see everything, as God's word does, challenging us to see everything from God's perspective and to relate his attitude and his heart towards others. And God, God I mean, if God is forbearing and patient and grace-giving, not administering um, the consequences of our sin in an immediate format. Should we not also trust God that He's going to make He's going to make it all right in the end? We can entrust ourselves to a faithful Creator who judges justly. In, in Exodus fourteen fourteen it says, "Be still, and I will fight for you." Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Like we're not called to retaliate, but to trust God. We're not called to judge and criticize, but we're called to extend mercy and grace because by the standard, this is so so challenging, but Jesus says, by the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. Father, help us to um, to, to love others the way that you've loved us. Father, help us to forgive others the way that you've forgiven us that you could remember, but you choose not to, that you forgived, you forgave from your heart. As far as the east is from the west, you've removed our sin from us, that this is your work, and that it not only has implications in eternity, but, but we feel liberated today. We feel set free from the shame and the guilt and the relational brokenness. And, Father, we, we, we experience your presence and power in order to be an expression of who you are in these in relationship with others, which can be so hard. Lord, I pray that we would not see people's mud, but we would see the fingerprints of the master all over them, that we would choose to see people from your perspective, not regarding anybody any longer from that perspective, but knowing that if they are in Christ, that they're a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. Help us. Help us to see people the way you see them and to yearn for them to come to repentance as you do. Father, help our lives to be free from judgment and full of mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.